Hey, well, today we're going to be continuing on this series uh, in Genesis. We're going to jump in just a second, but um, inside your program is a message note sheet. It's uh, green and white. You'll definitely want to pull that out, especially if you're the first time here to help you follow along. And so if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? All right, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here and uh, on the verge of Christmas and, and really taking a look at this epic story that begins in Genesis, ends in Revelation, this amazing promise you've made that one day one would come from the line of Eve who would crush the serpent's head, which is what Christmas is all about. And so we pray that as we, we unpack your word, you'd come, be our teacher, and speak, and not only help us understand the, the big picture story that you're telling, but our part in it and what it means to be a part of that today. And we pray this in your name, amen. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in all fall. It's called the Genesis Chronicles. And for those of you who are new, there's actually three series, kind of part of one series. It's a trilogy of series. This last one's called Rebellion and Redemption. And so what we've done in this third and final series is uh, we have looked at, we've watched as this first couple uh, that's created by this amazing God who loves them, created them for a life to thrive, that how they've rebelled against their creator they follow the great enemy, the serpent that we've identified as Satan, uh, and as a result, they're experiencing death on every level. So if you were here last week, we talked about this. So it's not just a physical death, it's, it's a spiritual death in our relationship with God. There's a, a moral, psychological death. We, we lose touch with ourselves. Uh, and there's a relational death with one another, but then there's even a cosmic death, which is what we'll be talking about next week in the final message of this series. Um, but in the midst of this darkness, uh, God comes and gives an amazing promise that's like a bright star on a, on a very dark night, and, and really, this is the first promise of Christmas. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me, if you have your apps, let's go ahead and turn them on to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we'll pick it up at verse 14. If you don't happen to have your Bible today, maybe you're visiting or something, uh, I put this passage on your, on your note sheet so you could follow along, but be sure, you know, if you have your own Bible, uh, open it up because it's always better in your own Bible, your own app, kind of mark it up. And so there in your note sheet is a section called The Promise, the Proto-Evangelium, which is Latin, and I know you're all so excited. So uh, we're going to jump in here in chapter 3, verse 14. That'll make more sense in a couple minutes, but uh, here we go. Chapter 3, verse 14. So let's set it up. Uh, first man, first woman, the rebel against God. Uh, God has now come to bring the judgment, their sentence for their rebellion. Obviously, when you, when you rebel against the source of all life, you cut yourself off, the end result is going to be death. And so he's going to begin to kind of issue these uh, judgments. He's going to start with the serpent who started the whole uh, mess. And uh, so in verse 14, it says, The Lord God sent to the serpent, who, remember, kind of represents Satan or, or is indwelt by Satan. He says, Because you've done this, because you have ripped off this first couple, because you've deceived them, because you have, in its essence, murdered them, led them to death. Um, cursed are you, you'll better curse above all the livestock and all the wild animals, and you'll crawl on your belly, and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. We've talked about this before in the series, so we'll move on. But here comes the important part. He says, I will put enmity, uh, I'll put strife, I'll put um, hostility, warfare, between you and the woman. Now, this is interesting, because obviously the woman has just aligned herself with the, with the serpent. Uh, she had to choose between following the creator or following the serpent. She aligned herself with the serpent. So she joined him. And I, I think you'll lead me to life more than this creator will. And yet uh, the prophecy is this is not going to work out well for either side, that this, this is going to be hostility between uh, the human race uh, the seed and, and between uh, Satan. And so he says that I will put uh, enmity between you and the woman 
and between your offspring and hers, which could mean, uh, could be a reference to between satanic forces and the human race, or it could be a reference to those who follow God in the human race and those who follow Satan. But either way, uh, and notice this in the plural, between your offspring and hers, and then, but all of a sudden he goes singular on us, and he says, he, so circle that, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so in the midst of this darkness, despair, dark night come over the race, there is this star that kind of rises, this, 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 this ray of hope in the dark night, that one will come from the line of Eve, will be a son of Eve, who will do battle with this serpent and, and there will be a, deliver a mortal blow. They will crush his head. In the process, he will be wounded. Uh, the word in Hebrew for crush and strike, it's the same word. So I don't know why they... They change it, but that one who will that that he will crush your head, mortal blow. You will crush his heel. There will be a significant wounding uh, in the process. And so, of course, if you're there at the time, uh, this has got to be this has got to be perplexing, right? This has got to be enigmatic. Uh, this this is not like if you're there, you're Adam, you're Eve. Uh, this prophecy is given. You're, you're like like what? What is that? And this is like a prophecy in like Lord of the Rings, you know, or The Hobbit that is um, it's kind of very hard to understand and really is not going to make much sense until you get closer to the fulfillment. Are, are you with me in this? It's just kind of, you're there, and it's like, wait, one's going to come from the line of evil, crush the serpent's head. Like, what does that mean? Well, in theology, scholars call this, this promise, they call this the proto-evangelium, right, which is Latin. And so proto, you're, you're, you're familiar with that, like the prototype, like there's rumors of a new iPhone, prototypes unseen. Uh, that means first. Uh, the word evangelium means um, good news. That's where we get our word evangelism or gospel from. So you put this together, it's called the, the first good news. In the midst of this dark night, star rises. Good news that as bad as it is, that one day one will rise from the seed of Eve that will crush the serpent's head, whatever that means. We're not really sure, but, but whatever that means. And this is really the first promise of Christmas. Uh, this is what Christmas is all about. Uh, and we've, we've talked about this throughout this series, that uh, when, you, when you come to Christmas, it's impossible to understand Christmas apart from Genesis chapter 3. In fact, this is why, and I pointed this out every week in December, that this is why so many of our Christmas carols refer to Genesis chapter 3. Every week I've given you an example. Here's another one. There in your note sheet, there's one, not my favorite carol, but it kind of proves a point. It's called God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. I'm not sure who these merry gentlemen are, but um, what he's telling them is, is to mellow out, rest. And so the song says, God rest ye merry gentlemen, kind of relax. Let nothing you dismay upset you. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from what? Satan's power when we had gone astray. What's he talking about? Genesis 3. Right? This is the background of this, of this verse. And then he says, oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, tidings of comfort and joy, proto-evangelium, first good news, Right? That there's one who will come from the line of Eve who will crush the serpent's head. Now, this is a story, the big picture story 
that Genesis is telling, the Bible is telling. What I want to do, I want to go back to what we've said several times in this series, kind of circle back. Several times in this series, I've said this, that the first three chapters of the Bible are three of the most important chapters in all the Bible. And the reason is, much like an epic novel, in the opening chapters, we'll introduce kind of the main characters, set the stage, the time, the place, the location, introduce uh, kind of the main plot line, the conflict that's going to drive the story all the way to the end. In the same way, the opening chapters of Genesis are like the first chapters of this epic story God's telling in the Bible that's going to drive the story all the way through till the final book of Revelation. We'll see it today. And so, uh, so as we're looking at this first, this first uh, promise that's made, this proto-evangelium, like I said, it's mysterious. It's enigmatic. What's it mean? And what's going to happen is over the next several hundred years, catch this, over the next several thousand years, God is going to begin to send additional promises, prophecies, they're going to build on this one. And with each prophecy, we're going to get a little bit more clarity about what the original one means, right? So here's what I want to do today. I want us to take a kind of a, a quick tour, like a, a 40,000 and 50,000 foot tour of the Bible as we watch this epic tale unfold that starts in Genesis, ends in Revelation. And so there you know she, you'll see several verses. We'll just run through them quickly, but we're going to jump ahead. The first one, we're going to jump ahead several thousand years in time. And we're going to come to the time of a man named Abram. Now, Abram grew up in modern-day Iraq. There was a very advanced city there. It was a, a, a pagan civilization, very advanced, very progressive city named Ur. Running water, uh, stone buildings, um, just a lot of kind of modern amenities. Uh, and it was a pagan, pagan area. One of the things we saw last week in Romans chapter 1 is that when we rebelled against God as a race, the lights went out spiritually. Remember that? We chose to embrace the lie rather than the truth about God, and so we became foolish, and and that we began to create gods in our own image, and and idolatry began to spread. Remember that? And so we see here in Genesis 12, this is what happened. If you have read, if you had read through Genesis 1 through 11, the story goes from bad to worse. Like after chapter 3, it is all downhill. And from that point on, you're going to see the race descending into chaos. And so all of a sudden in chapter 12, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of the idolatry, in the midst of the rebellion, in the midst of the violence, all of a sudden the story is going to take a turn. And the turn is going to happen in Ur of the Chaldees, modern day day Iraq, where God comes and he appears to a man who has been raised in a pagan world, worshiping the moon god, and he appears to him, and he calls him out. In the midst of this dark sky of idolatry, a star arises that will guide him to the future. And so there in your note sheet, in chapter 12, here's what happens. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, kind of everything you know. Go to the land I will show you. Take a step of faith. Go on an adventure. Take a quest. And I will make you into a great nation. The promise is made that I will turn you into a great nation. I will bless you. You'll, I'll make your name great. In other words, you become famous. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. In other words, you're leaving your family. You're, ne- you're leaving your nation. You're going to a strange land. You'll be a foreigner. It's going to be dangerous. I will protect you as you go. 
And then he gives this enigmatic final statement. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so it's the second promise. I'm sure at the time it was as confusing to him as the first promise was to the first couple. What does this mean? How is this going to work out? What does that mean that I'll, I'll be a blessing to all the earth? Now we fast forward. We're going to move ahead a couple hundred years. Abram is now dead. But it is his son, a grandson. His grandson is named Jacob. Jacob's name will later be changed to Israel. Uh, And so Jacob has 12 sons. He's living in the land where his grandfather Abram had brought the family. But there's a tremendous famine in the world. And that day, you can't go to, you know, Walmart or Costco. It's like you've got where the food is. There's a tremendous famine. And so he goes back to the breadbasket of the Nile River, back to, to Egypt in order to sustain his family. By this point in time, they've grown to about 70 members. So it's a large extended family, and they've grown to about 70 members. And when they get down there, they're about to go into one of the darkest periods of their history. They're about to go into slavery, a slavery that will last for over 400 years. But on the verge of this dark night, a star will rise. And God will speak through Jacob, and Jacob will call together his 12 sons, who will become the 12 sons of Israel, And he, on his deathbed, he prophesies over each of his sons. Very Lord of the Rings type of thing. Here's a prophecy about your future. And when he gets to his fourth son, the son's name is Judah. This is what he says. There in your note sheet, Genesis 49. He says, Judah, you are a lion's cup. The scepter. Now, what's a scepter speak of? It's like rule, a king, right? And catch this, there is no king at this point. They're a family, 70 people, 12 sons, and there is no nation, there is no king, and yet God speaks of kings, a line of kings that will one day come from the line of Judah. And he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes, circle that again, he, till he comes, to whom it belongs and the obedience of the what? The nations. They're not even a nation themselves yet. They're a family. But one day, one will rise from a line of kings. It will come from the line of Judah that will rule the nations. Once again, what's it mean? We don't know. Dark st- it's bright star in a dark sky as they're about to go into slavery. Something to hold on to about their future. Now we fast forward a thousand to about the year 1000 B.C., The nation of the family of Israel has now become the nation of Israel. They've had their first king. It was a bad king. His name is Saul. His descendants don't follow him as kings. As his son, Jonathan's killed on the battlefield, there is no Saul dynasty of kings. So God raises up another man. His name is David. Guess which tribe he comes from? Yeah, Judah. And God raises him up to be the king of Israel. He will become the greatest king in their history. And God promises that from him will come a line of kings. From his family, the family of David, will come a line of kings. And that one day, one of these kings will be like a son to God. And that he will rule the world. And so sure enough, after David dies, his son Solomon takes the throne. Unlike Saul, who's 
whose lineage ended with his reign, with David, the Davidic line continues. Solomon takes the throne. And then after Solomon, his son Rehoboam, and we have over 400 years of Davidic kings. Think of that like in the history of our nation. We're not even 400 years old yet. 400 years of Davidic kings. But over those years, the nation rebels against God time and time again. The prophets keep warning them, unless you come back, get your act together, you're going to lose your nation, you're going to lose your capital, you're going to lose the throne. Sure enough, in 586 B.C., the superpower Babylon invades. They destroy the capital city. They destroy the throne. They destroy the temple. The last Davidic king, a man named Zedekiah, is taken away in exile along with the whole nation into a second slavery. So it's like before they came from, ex, from, from Egypt, now they're going to the other city of Babylon. It's like, like history is repeating itself but in the wrong direction. It's the darkest moment of their nation. Their nation is, war, is, is destroyed. Their future is gone. They are in exile being absorbed into another nation. If you woke up in August of 586 BC and you're reading the Wall Street Journal in Babylon, it's going to tell you that's, that nation's gone. That nation's done. That pesky kingdom is over. It's been completely destroyed and obliterated. They will be assimilated. They will lose their identity like all the other nations that we have conquered. And yet, in the midst of that dark sky, a star rises. And this time it comes from the prophets of Israel who have predicted that not only would there be an exile and not only would the city be destroyed and the the throne taken away, but they have predicted that one day the nation will return and that a Davidic king will come again. And that this time the Davidic king will be more than just a son of David. He will be also a son of God. And so in the midst of that dark, dark night of judgment, star rises, the prophet Isaiah, writing in about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Very famous prophecy you've seen on Christmas cards over the years. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Remember, he's the king. And he'll be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, more than just the Son of David the everlasting father, prince of peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. He will be a Davidic king, son of David, and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And so in the midst of the dark night of captivity, the star rises, the promise is given of a son who will come, a child that will be given, will have the name Mighty God, and now the the nation plunges into darkness. For the next 500 years after they're they're taken into captivity, for the most part, it's it's a time of great distress and oppression. There's a a short period of time when they actually have some national independence in those 500 years, but for the most part, they're ruled by other nations. So it starts with Babylon, then it goes to Persia, then it goes to Greece with Alexander the Great, then it goes to Syria, and then it goes to Rome. And so the time of Jesus, the nation is in a time of darkness. The land is in darkness. It's a time of great oppression. They're under Roman rule. And yet, once again, a star rises. This time, it is a literal star. 
and the Magi, most likely coming from the Middle East, probably from, from Babylon, that they see this star, they travel a thousand miles. And then when we get to the capital city of Jerusalem where the nation is returned, but under foreign rule, think of France during Nazi Germany, uh, under Nazi rule, that during that time, the Magi come and they come to religious leaders and said, hey, we got this far on our own. We followed the star, but hey, what do your scriptures say about this great king that's coming? Where will he be born? And they said, oh, it's easy. It's in Bethlehem. That was the hometown of David, the great king. And the prophet Micah said, it's there that he will be born. And so they head to Bethlehem and they find this child in in a home there and they worship him. And so this promise that God has made thousands of years before that one would come from the line of Eve has been literally fulfilled. In fact, it's not only from the line of Eve. He's from the nation of Abram. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's from the family of David. And he's born in Bethlehem, as the prophets have said. And so this, of course, is the story of Christmas, right? But here's what I want you to catch. We are only at the halfway point of this epic novel. Often we look at Christmas as the end. It's really not. It's the middle of the story. Because this child was born not just so that Shepherds in the field could wonder, not just so that Mary could treasure up things in her heart, not only so that Magi could travel a thousand miles to worship this newborn king. This, this child was born not so he could sing away in a manger or hark the herald angels sing or give Christmas gifts or eat candy canes or eat a lot of awesome fudge. <laughs> All the good things. But I want you to catch this. This child was born to go to war. That's why this child's born. This is what Christmas is about. Think of the Proto-Evangelium. One will come from the line of Eve who will crush the serpent's head. This child does not come to bring peace. He's come to go to war, to go to war with the dark side. That's what Christmas is about. It's a declaration of war. It's the infiltration into enemy territory of a secret agent who will bring down the evil regime. That's what's going on here. And so you see this because as the child raises up, 30 years later, he's baptized. Remember Mark chapter 1? Remember remember we were in the gospel of Mark for like nine years? (laughs) Remember Mark chapter 1? Jesus comes to the Jordan River, baptized by John. Holy Spirit comes upon him, anointed for ministry. What's the very first thing he does? Goes into the wilderness to do battle with the enemy for over a month. And when he comes out in the power of the Spirit, first thing he does in the Gospel of Mark, goes to Capernaum to begin to teach in his synagogue. What's the first thing that happens? First miracle, first act of power in the Gospel of Mark is as he's teaching, a demonized man stands up for a power confrontation. I know who you are, Jesus, the Holy One of God. I know why you've come to destroy us. Let's throw down. And Jesus takes that first route. And he frees that man from demonic oppression. Battle on. And you see this throughout the ministry of Jesus. His exorcisms weren't little like a little sideshow. They were like part of the main event. That Jesus was coming into enemy territory and taking back prisoners. In fact, this is what Jesus said. He said, the, the religious leaders said, hey, the reason 
that you have the power to cast out demons is because you're operating in league with Satan himself. Jesus said, that is not the reason. He said, the reason is because I've come, I'm like a strong man breaking into a rich man's house and tying him up and ripping off his stuff. That's what's going on here. I am breaking in. He said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, it is proof that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And yet catch this, all these opening skirmishes, all these opening exorcisms, they were just a prelude to the main event. Like, you know, when you go to, you know, like, to a boxing match or, or kind of the martial arts thing, you know, it's like there's going to be all these opening cards, right? And it all leads up to the opening event. Well, these exorcisms are, are just the opening cards that lead up to the main event. And the main event is going to be on the cross. And the crazy thing about this, we look back at it as the greatest victory. At the time, it looked like the greatest defeat. You see, this was Satan's idea. I mean, remember in the Gospel of John, where we're told that Satan put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, to have him turned over to the authorities, to have him executed? Jesus was going way too well. This warfare between Jesus and Satan, Jesus was winning. Satan knows the prophecy that one will rise from the line of Eve and crush his head. He's like, no way, that's not going to happen, not on my watch. I'm taking him out. I'm going to crush his head before he can get started. He comes into Jerusalem. The city is going crazy. Hosanna. It's the moment. It's like this thing's going to get out of control. They're going to come to Messiah. Satan thinks this is going to go out into the world. The kingdom's coming now. Satan's going, I got to stop this thing. And so he puts it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And he has Jesus executed. And he thinks he wins. I crushed his head. He was going to crush my head. I crushed his head. But what Satan didn't realize was that in the cross, the head of the serpent was going to be crushed. Because in Christ, God had come in person to rescue the race. In Christ, God had come, and in Jesus, it was my life for your life. There was a prisoner exchange. We're in this, and he gave his life for us. And and that through his death and his resurrection, there is a way now for us to come home, be forgiven, restored to our creator, experience life as it's designed to be lived, be completely forgiven, live a new life just now. Satan just understand the strategy. And three days later, when Jesus came out of the grave, Satan realized the amazing miscalculation. And what had actually happened is what looked like the moment of Jesus' greatest defeat was his most greatest victory, that he had stripped the enemy of all armor and weapons. You know, in Rome, when a great general would lead a major campaign over, not just like a single battle, but a major campaign over an area of the nation, like like when Israel rebelled in 70 AD, Titus conquered them after several years of warfare, after six years of warfare, when the conquering general would come back to Rome, they would basically throw a party. And they would have a parade through the streets of Rome, and the conquering general would come through on a chariot with white horses. The people would lie in the street, praising him, singing his praises. They would, they would burn incense. They would throw flowers before him. And then behind him, he would leave the captives, 
the top religious, political, military leaders of the nation that he had conquered, and they would be humiliated, and they'd be stripped of their weapons, and they'd be in chains, and they would be headed for the arena where they would be executed. And Paul uses this analogy to help us understand what happened at the cross. The next verse there on your note sheet It's only the next one. Paul says this, Colossians 2, find that verse. He says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, seven the spiritual forces of darkness, that Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see the military language? And so, so this is the story of Je- Jesus comes, and these exorcisms that he did, they were not just a one-off. They were not just a side show. They were the main event, all leading up to the cross. In fact, it's interesting, the apostle Peter, looking back on the life and teaching of Jesus years later, after his resurrection, after his ascension to heaven, years later, he's sharing the message of Jesus with a Roman military officer. Jump back up to the Acts 10 passage. And he's summarizing the ministry of Jesus, and he says, You know, talking to this Roman military officer, he said, you know what has happened throughout Judea, which is the land of Israel. He says, this is public knowledge, you're aware of it, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, that's at his baptism, and he anointed him with power, and how he went around, and and Peter is going to summarize the ministry of Jesus in two simple points. Going to wrap it up. He says, he went around doing good, right, so that's miracles, teaching, compassion, so on. He went around doing good and healing all those who are under the power of what? The devil. He said, summarize Jesus. Hey, he went, on heal- he went on doing good and he set people free. Years later, the apostle John would summarize the ministry like this. Look at the next verse, 1 John 3. The reason the Son of God appeared, why did Jesus come? Was to destroy what? The devil's work. And so what we see in Jesus is we see the birth of this child that's coming to do warfare. The war starts off with the exorcisms, the, re- the freeing of people. The, the main event is the cross where it looks like he loses. He actually wins. He strips the enemy of all rights over us. And so now there's a way for us to come home and be forgiven. But of course, this is not the end of the story, right? Because the war still goes on. In fact, uh, this was a decisive victory. Like the cross was like D-Day. It's the turning point in this battle, this epic battle the Bible is describing from beginning to end. But it's not the end, because we're still in this war today, aren't we? And in our next series, we'll study this in, in epic, how that we're in the midst of a spiritual war. Paul will say in Ephesians 6, your fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual powers and principalities and authorities. So take your stand, put on the full armor. We're in this battle. This battle is still going on. And yet the, the end of this victory is, is secure. And you don't get to the end until the book of Revelation. So this story that starts in Genesis with the, with the proto-evangelium and the promise, it's going to end in Revelation. And so the story that, that begins there in the opening chapters ends in the final chapters. And there in your note sheet, Revelation 20. Look down. It's after the Colossians verse where you looked at. John has this vision of the end. And it's a highly symbolic vision. But he says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. 
And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan. Look at the language. He sees the dragon that is that ancient what? Serpent. Genesis 3. We're at the end of the Bible. We're in Genesis 20. We're, we got two chapters to go. The serpent's introduced three chapters in, in Genesis. So he sees that dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, came a temporary binding, like a temporary restraining order. And then when he's released, a few verses later, it says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet have been thrown, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so this is a story. The story that you're involved in, the story that I am, the story of our race, amazing God who loves us out of his brilliance, out of his glory, out of his love, his compassion, his beauty. He creates all this creation, gives it to us as a gift so we can thrive. We rebel against him, source of all life, lose our life. In the midst of that dark night, a promise is given that one day someone will come from the line of Eden who will rise up and bruise the serpent's head. And the story of the Bible is that story. It's the story of the promise, the promise made to Abraham to create a nation out of which this one could come. And then out of the nation, a line of Judah, and out of the line of Judah, a line of David, and out of the line of David, the one would come who would bruise the serpent's head. From beginning to end, this epic tale is one of warfare. And so when we come to Christmas, it's sort of the halfway point in this story But what I want you to understand, if you've never understand before, is Christmas is a warfare story. It's a story of the birth of the great warrior who will come, who will crush the serpent's head. Now, what that means is that Christmas always presents us with a choice. Christmas always forces a decision. Christmas always asks us a question. Here's the question, which side are you on? You see, in a room like this, there are two kinds of people, and there's only two kinds of people. There are those who have come to Jesus Christ and recognized in him as the son of Eve who came to crush the serpent's head. And they have bowed their knee to the son who was born in the manger, this child that was given. They have have bowed their knee. They've come under his leadership. They've asked him to forgive them for their rebellion against their true creator. And they have received the gift of total amnesty for all crimes against the king, his life for their life. And they've received the gift of his spirit who's going to empower them to live a whole new life, not only in this life, but in the next life. Now, if you're in that category, you consider yourself in that category. Here's what I want you to catch. Christmas is a great reminder that you and I are in a war. The moment you came to Jesus, you switched sides in this epic war that's been going on from the beginning of time. The moment you came to Jesus, Paul puts it like this in Colossians. He said, you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. The moment you came to Jesus, you switched sides. You picked up a new enemy and you picked up a new target on your back. The moment you came to Jesus, he equipped you. In fact, this is what we'll see in the next series in Ephesians, that the moment you came to Jesus, you find out that you were chosen before time began to come to Jesus. 
that he chose you before time began to come to him, to have your eyes open, to be set free from the prince of the power of the air. That you were chosen to be forgiven. You were chosen to be adopted. You were chosen to receive the gift of his spirit. And you were chosen to be empowered with a certain gift mix and resources to help join him in this battle. The moment you came to Jesus, there is a calling on your life. And it is a high and holy calling to enter into warfare with the king of kings who became a child to grow up to become a warrior and lead us in battle. And the moment you came to Jesus, this is your calling. This is your identity before time began. And I cannot wait till we get to the next series. You can tell, I'm already preaching it. Because it means that there's a story before the story. Before the creation of the world, you were chosen to be rescued from a fallen race and to be part of a rescue mission. And you've been uniquely gifted and resourced to become part of this. There is a high and holy calling on your life. And so the question I have for you at Christmas is, are you living out your calling? Or are there areas of your life this Christmas where you have given Satan a foothold in your life? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your parenting. Maybe it's in your purity. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's in your pride. It's in your career. It's an area of forgiveness or bitterness. You know, in Ephesians 4, next series, Paul will say, hey, you need to get rid of the anger in your life because when you hold on to anger and bitterness, it creates a foothold for Satan in your life. Hey, as you go into Christmas, are, are, you, living, are you living out your vi- the vision for your life? Are you living out the calling? Or is there an area of your life you're compromising? You're listening to the serpent instead of your savior. And as a result, you're experiencing death. And, and you're, you're, you're blowing it. You're missing You're missing this life you're created to live. Christmas is a reminder that there is a war, and we're either on one side or the other. And the question is, are you winning or are you losing? And is there anything this Christmas, before we go into Thursday, before we get ready to celebrate, is there an area, before we go into a new year, is there an area you need to bow your knee to your true king and be rescued and to be saved and to live a life you're called to live. Now, second kind of person in this room, you are not yet a follower of Jesus. And to be honest, this may be the first time you've ever heard the story of Christmas. I mean, you know, you know parts of the story. You know it involves a baby. It involves a manger. You probably heard of some angels. You, you may have heard of wise men, a virgin, um, Herod, Uh, There there may be parts of the story that you've known, but you haven't really understood the part that this story plays in the larger story that God's telling. This larger story of a rebel race, a race that's condemned to death because of our rebellion, fallen away from our true king, under the power of, of the enemy who's deceived us, stripped of the life we were designed to live, destined for judgment. You haven't really understood that Christmas is right in the middle of that story. And that the reason this son was born and given to us was to rescue us. 
You've not even understood that the son has come with an offer, and his offer is to rescue you from the dark side. His, his offer is to forgive you total amnesty for all crimes against the king. Do you be forgiven? A new relationship with God, a new life, that his spirit would come in you, empower you to live a whole new life, not just this life, but the next. You haven't even understood that story. But today, for the first time, you're hearing that story. Or maybe you've known the story, you've just resisted. Because there's some areas of your life you're not ready to submit to your king. You honestly believe that they're just so important to you that you're not really willing, they're not negotiable. So you're not willing to bow the knee to your creator because you think you can do life better on your own. And so you'd rather choose the darkness rather than the light. But for whatever reason, Christmas presents us with a story that has to be reckoned with. It presents us with a choice. What it tells us is we're part of this story whether we want to be or not. You don't really have the option to opt out of this story. You can't say, well, I don't like that story. I'm gonna find a different story. Like it's the only story there is. If you're alive and breathing, you're part of the story. If you're a human being, you're part of the story. You're part of the rebel race that's rebelled. You've rebelled, I've rebelled, we've all rebelled, we're under judgment. There's only one way out, and there's one who's come. And the only question is whether you receive his offer or not. But here's the thing. You know, this week, we're going to go on Thursday, on Wednesday night at Christmas Eve, or maybe Christmas morning, depending on your family and how you do this. But very likely, you'll be opening some presents. There'll be a tree there, maybe a corner of the room. But very likely, you'll be opening presents. Very likely, some of those have your presents have your name on them. But here's what I want you to catch. Until you open the present and decide to keep it, hey, is there a gift, is there a gift uh, receipt? Um, <laughs> until you open the present and decide to keep it and you take it out of the box and you put it on or you plug it in or you do whatever, start to use it, it's not your gift, right? As long as it's under the tree, it's been given, but it's not really yours, you have to receive it. You have to open it. You have to take it. And so this Christmas, the son of Eve has come to crush the serpent's head in your life. His offer is on the table. It's wrapped there in the tree. It's a gift of forgiveness, a gift of new relationship with God. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, power to live a new life. It's a gift of eternity. But only you can decide whether you'll unwrap it, take it out of the box and receive it. For that to happen, it requires you trust this God, but it also requires you bow the knee to this God. You can't, you can't continue to live your own life. You can't continue to follow the serpent and get the gifts. Right? It's a package deal. You bow the knee. You come under his leadership. You ask for his forgiveness. You let him be your true king and creator. And then he does what he does best that's new creation, and he recreates your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. While well, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to talk to both groups of people here. If you're, my, uh, you're a follower of Jesus, um, you've given your life to him, I want to ask you, are you living life to the full? Are you trusting your true king? Or are there areas of your life that, that and I'm not looking for you to be like morbidly introspective here. So I'm just saying, hey, as you go before God, and you're honest before him and say, God, is there an area of my life where there's a foothold for the enemy? I'm just saying, hey, if there's an area he brings to mind, 
We're not trying to dig up stuff. I'm just saying if there's an area that, that the Holy Spirit's just putting out, it's your marriage, it's your kids, it's forgiveness, it's money, it's sex, it's uh, your entertainment, it's a, a forgiveness. There's just an issue. And something the Holy Spirit's been talking to you about and you've been resisting. And as a result, you are being immobilized. You're no good to the kingdom. You're not carrying out your calling. You're not carrying out your identity. You're not being who you're created to be. You're not experiencing the life you have. You're, you're experiencing death because you have given the enemy a foothold. And what I'm saying is, is why are you doing that? This makes no sense. He loves you. He died for you. I'm encouraging you, let it go. Trust him. Bow the knee. Ask him to come in. Do what he tells you to do and experience the light. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing to go into Christmas free? And then while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, let me talk to those of you. You're not a follower of Jesus. You know it yet, but there is something inside you right now that's leaping inside of your chest. Like if you're ready to run forward right now, that you just want this. You want Jesus. You didn't even know this. You didn't even know this story. You didn't understand the story. You didn't understand the offer, the gifts he's offering you, but, but you want God. You're tired of your life. You're sick of it. You want God. You want to know him. You want to know the meaning of life and the purpose of life. You want to be forgiven, and you want to be empowered. You want a new life, and you want to know that when you die, that there's something coming, and it's for you, and it's amazing, and you want to be ready for that, and if that's you, I want to give you a chance to give your life to Jesus today. He's come to set you free and to open your eyes from darkness to light, to turn you from the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of God. And if that's you today, I want to give you a chance to give your life to Jesus. It's very simple. I'm going to pray a prayer. If it expresses a desire of your heart, just pray along with me in your mind or in your heart, and he will listen, and he will, and if you're sincere, he will hear. And, and, and your life will change. And so just pray with me now. Dear Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to break Satan's power in my life. I ask you to open my eyes to break the spell, to cause me to come alive. I pray you'd forgive me for all my rebellion. And I pray you'd fill me with your spirit, a new spirit. Teach me how to follow you. Not just this life, but the next life. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If you just pray that prayer, first I want to welcome you to the kingdom. Welcome to the family of God. You've just taken the first step to an amazing journey. But I would also love to know that decision. So inside your program is a little card called the Connect card. In a couple of minutes, we're going to go into a time of worship and offering. What I'd ask is that you would fill out that card, and on the back of it, just point, Mike, I prayed the prayer. I asked Jesus into my life. I'll know what you mean. And this week, I can pray with you. Our prayer teams can pray for you. And also, I'll send you a letter with some just... First baby steps in your new relationship with Jesus. And so, Lord, we come as your people gathered in your name on the verge of another Christmas. And we thank you that you've chosen us to play an important role in this epic story. And God, we pray that you'd meet us in a powerful way as we worship you now, as we bring your offerings, as we give you our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and worship. And Lord, that's why we're here, to give you glory, that this amazing story that we're all part of, there was a time and a place when we rebelled. At the moment of our rebellion, at the moment of our hatred of you, our moment of our choosing to, to follow the great enemy, that a bright star 
rose on a dark night. Your love and your mercy promise in spite of the death that comes as a result of rejecting the source of all life, that there would come a time when you would rescue us. You would enter in, become a part of our race, become one of us to take the sin of our rebellion on your back, that your back would be torn for us, your hands, your feet would be pierced for us, that you would be lifted up. And as your word says, as you said, that if I lift him up, I am lifted up, that I will draw all men to myself. There on that cross, that you disarmed the powers and the authorities, stripped them, you led them in a public procession, you humiliated them, that now you offer us this gift of life through your gift of death. And God, we come to celebrate that this week, this, this arrival of this great promise, this proto-evangelium, the promise made to Eve, the promise made to Abram, the promise made to Jacob, the promise made to David, the promise made through Isaiah, the promise made through Micah, that one day one would come would crush the serpent's head. And God, we thank you for your amazing grace and mercy that though we've rebelled against you each and every one, that you've made a way for us home. And not only to be forgiven, not only to receive amnesty, but to be adopted in your family as your very own sons and daughters, that you might love us forever. It's exactly what your word says. And so God, we pray that our eyes would be opened in fresh ways to the marvel of this love. And then on this Christmas, God, we would worship you in fresh ways, and you would give you our lives, and we'd cleanse them of any footholds for the enemy, that we might be used to join you in this epic battle, this battle for this planet, for this universe, this cosmos, to be restored and healed, the new heavens and the new earth that's coming. We pray you empower us as a church, that we might be used this year to make a difference in that battle for you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas, Rocky Peak. It's so good to be with you. And to celebrate uh, the child that was born, the son that is given, that has crushed the serpent's head. And I hope you can be with us on Wednesday as we go into Christmas. What a great way to get ready for Christmas before all the craziness and the food and the family and all the things dysfunction. All that starts, right? What a great thing to, to gather as a church family, sons and daughters of the king, and to celebrate him and to reflect on this hope. And what a great opportunity to bring those who don't yet know the child yet and to bring them the hope in their lives, the hope for their marriage, the hope for their families, hope for their careers, hope for their lives, for their personal lives, their salvation. And we'll be sharing that. And so we'll gather back on Christmas Eve, and I hope you can be here. Don't forget that after every service, we always have a prayer team off to my right down here in front. If you need prayer for anything, head there. Until Christmas Eve, may the Christ of Christmas be with you. May he rise like the morning star in the dark skies of our lives. The true hope, the one that's come to rescue us from the evil one. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. Love you.